Hi, I'm Aaron Ironside. Welcome to Active Intelligence. I hope you'll join me for the next 30 minutes as we discuss social issues from a variety of perspectives. Well, unless, of course, we've been cancelled already or, or censored, because that stuff is happening all the time. In fact, it's kind of what today's episode is all about, that big tech feels like it's okay to censor what ordinary people are posting and therefore influence what they think and believe. We'll find out if they're allowed to do that today and engage some active intelligence. On today's episode, I talk with Matt Archer. He's done something that many of us have said we've done, but we didn't actually do. And that is read the terms and conditions before we clicked that little box that said that we had. What's in those terms and conditions? Anything that you and I need to be concerned about? Well, many people were concerned during the recent U.S. presidential elections that an app that had become a favorite of conservative people was under fire. You see, many conservative people felt censored by the mainstream social media platforms, and so they started using Parler so they could speak more freely. And then Google and Apple decided to cancel the app. Nobody doubts Parler's increasing popularity. Check out this data, which I got from the team over at Sensor Tower this morning. In 2020, they tell me that the Parler app was downloaded about 9.6 million times. That is more than 25 times the number in 2019. But now big tech is cracking down, including Apple, which removed Parler from its app store, saying that posts on Parler related to the right on Capitol Hill included calls for violence, which violate store rules. For example, screenshots of the app viewed by CNBC show users threatening to bring bombs to AWS data centers. Apple saying in a statement, there is no place on our platform for threats of violence and illegal activity. Parler has not taken adequate measures to address the proliferation of these threats to people's safety. Now, some argue that this is a unique moment for Apple, a game-changing step in how the company thinks about its store, which analysts do say is critical, accounting, they think, for about 40% of total services revenue. But in reality, this actually isn't a first for Tim Cook's company. The iPhone maker has rules in place for content on the store, and when apps violate those guidelines, they can get suspended or removed. It's happened before, for instance, to InfoWars. Telegram and QDrops, an app associated with a QAnon conspiracy theory. For his part, though, Parler's CEO pushing right back hard, saying we can't just write a few algorithms that will quickly locate 100% of objectionable content. But that doesn't mean we haven't been effective. Up until Friday afternoon, it seemed he said that Apple, Amazon and Google agreed. But big tech obviously arguing here that his efforts, at least to date, haven't been enough. And so the question is, is that really Really allowed? Is that a free speech issue? Legal experts around the world are discussing this topic. So in Canada, Gene Polisinski weighed in on the issue, but it turns out that the law may in fact be on the side of Mark Zuckerberg. You know, by law, actually, the, the social media companies have every right to decide what they're going to uh, carry on their websites or their social media sites. Um, they're a private company. The First Amendment in the United States applies only to government. It was intended to restrain government from punishing us or preventing us from speaking. So on the legal grounds, uh, they have every right to do. In addition, they have those those things that we never read, all that boilerplate when we sign up uh, called terms of service. And in the terms of service for each of those sites, they, they have a contractual right to limit or ban or remove comments that they find uh, 
they inappropriate for whatever reason, really, that they cite. So legally, they're fine. I think you're talking, and many people are talking about the atmospherics around it. It's become such an important way to communicate that um, it, it almost approaches the kind of uh, government aspect in terms of uh, its reach, having the ability to communicate. I call it going, in our history, from the village green to the village screen. It's where we talk to each other. So uh, I think we're going to see more fights over this, but currently the law is on the side of the social media company. So not technically a free speech issue because the village green has become the village screen. And boy, isn't that confusing? I mean, it certainly looks like a public space, like a community space. It's hard to realize that that's actually a private space and therefore different rules apply in that zone. No wonder many of us are getting in trouble. Well, it's time now for this week's interview. I caught up with tech expert Matt Archer. Well, my guest today has been doing IT his entire life. In fact, when you read his CV, it's really only two words. You see Chief Information Officer or Chief Technology Officer, which is what it must be these days. Uh, he travels around the world offering advice on how to make sure that you get the most out of your technology. Matt Archer has been involved in some of the biggest companies uh, and has really become an international expert on the things of technology, which is why he's the ideal guest today to talk about big tech. Matt, nice to have you. Thank you, Aaron. Great to be here, my man. Well, let's talk about the early days, just before we get into the serious stuff today, of your journey with technology. I'm dying to know what your first computer was. Oh, my first computer was back in the days before we had 386s, um, my dad brought me an 8088, uh, which was effectively a 186 computer when I was about 13 or thereabouts were in Australia and uh, ignited my, my passion for that whole world and spent the next couple of years, like most kids at high school, copying computer games and playing computer games to the early hours and getting up early and, and type of tinkering some more. So, so yeah, I was lucky to be right at the birth of the whole home PC revolution. So put that into some context. When we talk about computing power, uh, how much more powerful is my phone than that first computer? Oh my goodness. Oh, it would be, it would, let's just call it 200,000 times. <laughs> I mean, the computers, which, uh, which we have in our pockets now dwarf the entire computer operation that they used to put a man on the moon. And you know, that was, you know, just such huge amount of computing power. But, uh, you know, it's the transistor age and I've worked out how to make it smaller and smaller and make the heat go away. So, uh, you know, we're, we're going to keep going for a while yet. Well, as you mentioned, the computer is now in our pocket. It's a remarkable mm. development. And it's hard to believe, really, that that's only the last 10 years or so that we've had truly smartphones. They really mm. were an incredible leap forward in technology, weren't they? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I remember a part of my journey having all of the devices. You had your Walkman, you had your your camera, you had your, you know, your dictaphone, you know, we used to use to take messages while we're doing bits and pieces. We had, you know, our big massive computer, we had our MP3 players. It was just like you needed a bag of all this technology if you were lucky, if you had the small stuff. And and now we've got it all in something that, that weighs a couple of hundred grand. It's incredible. 
Well, and that little device, boy, is it starting to rule our world. In fact, we've all discovered that in reality, we are Pavlov's dogs, except instead of the bell, <laughs> it's things like likes that get us salivating and interested. Uh, it's amazing to think how quickly so many of us have become absolutely hooked to the technology and in particular social media. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if you've got an opinion, you have to publish it. Um, and look, I agree with you, even, even the simple things like food, we don't notice it so much in New Zealand. We're starting to see a bit of Uber Eats turning up, but, uh, but DoorDash and these other things in the States in particular are, are probably more um, available in, in people's primary uh, method of even obtaining food, especially in, in the COVID lockdown now. A lot of the companies and restaurants over there just will not serve you. And if you want to buy food from them, you must have one of these devices and you must set it up. And that's the way that, that you obtain food nowadays. So it's, it's, it's getting quite, quite in, integrated every part of our lives at a very basic level now. Well, behind, of course, all those apps are big businesses. And for most of us, we are just simply engaging with those apps as a matter of course. And yet it does seem, particularly in the last year, that we've seen something of a mood change around social media. I know that you've recently returned from the US, so perhaps you'll have an even keener insight into the role that presidential elections play in this kind of move. But for the first time, I've seen people saying that they're actually abandoning Facebook, abandoning the big social media companies, adopting much lesser known platforms. And they're doing it based out of a, a kind of a fear that we'll talk about mm -hmm. that fear is, is well founded in a second. But first of all, uh, was it a surprise mm -hmm. to you to notice that people were now fleeing these social media platforms? Yeah, I think America is a very interesting country. Um, I mean, it's founded on the premise of throwing off the oppressor's yoke, you know, and and, and escaping, uh, you know, the British colonization of the world and finding their own way. So, you know, at the very core of the American people is, an, is a fierce independence, which uh, irrespective of, of what side of the, the house they choose to align with is, is a don't tell me what to do. And I think that social media at its birth was an uncensored, unedited forum where, where people could express their views and, and icons in the world could have a voice to people. And I think with the characters that have turned up recently and some of the pressures in the world, those freedom of speech channels have now become, you know, owned by uh, the people paying for them and those people are now getting to decide who can be on them. And I think that strikes at the heart of, of what America is about. Don't, don't censor me. Don't tell me what to do. And so I think, I think uh, you know, people's, people have felt betrayed by a lot of these massive corporations that they've invested, you know, decades of their life putting photos and building networks with. And it doesn't, doesn't serve them like it used to anymore. So I do get it. Let's talk about that the issue of photos and data and the sense that social media looks like a public space, but it's mm. not. It's a private space owned by a business, and therefore the general ideas of freedom of speech don't actually apply. In fact, most of us have clicked uh, the accept terms and conditions button on these platforms and in fact have given away what seems like our private stuff to a private business and we don't really even know what we've done. As someone who deals with information security, what is reality? What have I given Facebook? What have I given Messenger by using their platforms? 
part of the uh, part of the job that I've done over you know ten to fifteen years in this chief information officer role that I've done for many companies is not many people in the world would ever read those terms and conditions, but it's been my job too, and actually read every single one of them. The, the, the dozens and sometimes hundreds of pages of terms and conditions that that um, as an officer of a company, I have to decide if we're going to bind the company to the use, you know, the legal terms and conditions of that. So I've read so many of these and got to understand what actually is in there. And it's, it's very scary, Aaron, what you're doing with most of these people is signing away um, all of your rights in perpetuity, you know, to every country and every planet in the galaxy, handing over your rights to anything that you post on these networks. So what that means is that you take a, a photo of your child in some nice um, hat or nice um, outfit, you post that up on a, on a social media site. You may find that in the terms and conditions, that social media site has been granted by you because you're using their site the right to sell that photo of your child to an, to another outfit to make money. And you're what seems like your property. It's not your property. You are actually generating media for them to own. Now, they don't take advantage of that because if they did, they would get mass you know, walkouts and rebellion. But the underlying terms and conditions, you sign away your right to everything you post. If you are a poet and you're writing prose, that prose doesn't belong to you. If you're a if you're a um, a news writer and you're wanting to write up some event that's that you've just witnessed, you put on a social media site, you'll find that most of the news stations will not touch that because it doesn't belong to you. It's not yours to give away. You can't share it that way. So is this a big problem? Well, for day-to-day, -day, no. But if those companies are going to start to use your information to put ads on your screen and to sell you things, they have to have those rights. Otherwise, you could you could take uh, you know, take them to court and, and give them grief. So it's uh, smoke and mirrors is, is probably a, a good analogy, but it's it is is something people should be quite wide awake and aware of um, before they put too much personal things. And certainly the the next idea that's going to reshape the world should never be going up onto a social media account because you'll lose the rights to make uh, make your billions of dollars off that. So there are a couple of things here that you've mentioned. One is the way in which social media platforms sell data about us to third parties mm -hmm. so that third parties know that their ad is being put in front of someone who wants to see that ad, who might potentially want to buy that product. And I, for one, don't mind that too much. After all, I'd much rather see ads for barbecues than ads for makeup. Uh, but there is that sense in which many of us have not realized that we are, in fact, the product on social media. Mm. Yeah, it's correct. And look, uh, you may not mind the ads. So many people do. Um, and, you know, Facebook is a, is a multi-billion dollar uh, company. Twitter is multi-billion dollar. We've got, you know, countless of these, these social entities that their revenue streams depend on being able to sell advertising and being able to, to market to people and, and sell their data, whether it be anonymized, which means that your name isn't necessarily turning up in the sales list, but your social um, profile is turning up in an aggregate form. Um, it's, it's the way that these companies are able to establish a return for their shareholders. Their shareholders demand it. Their shareholders are demanding more invasive tracking and more 
um, more levers to be able to be sold and commoditized. So you, you put it absolutely correctly. We are the product and our participation in these networks strengthens our masters who own us, the social media networks. And as part of that, of course, it's sort of almost ironic that when the COVID situation occurred, many people objected to things like the COVID tracker, as if Google wasn't tracking your movements anyway, as if the social media people didn't know exactly where you were. It's been kind of funny to find people object to something that many of them didn't realize was happening the whole time anyway. One of the scary things, I'm not sure if you've heard of anyone who's had this experience, but, you know, we have these things like the Google Homes and the Alexas, and and there's been a number of times where, you know, we've been, you know, querying these things, even, you know, I have one at my place, which makes you maybe ask some questions about myself, but we'll be asking some questions of some fact or what have you, and the next time I open my Google browser, I'm, I'm getting advertising pitched to me. Because somewhere in that loop of interconnected things, when I'm asking the weather and whether I need to buy jandals to go to the beach, next time I open my Google web browser, now I'm getting pitched jandals from every jandal seller. Um, you know, did I subscribe to that? Well, the answer is no. But more importantly, I didn't go into the settings, which are very difficult to find and turn that off. So with a lot of these people, you're having to opt out as opposed to opt in, which I think causes people a lot of a lot of angst. Let's talk about perhaps the more concerning development of recent times. And on the one hand, we kind of understand that there's a certain responsibility for the social media platforms because they are broadcasters. So we are the shows and they are the broadcaster. And so they do have a certain responsibility about what they let be broadcast, just like the TV station. So we understand at some level why when President Trump was saying things that seemed that they might incite uh, illegal actions that somehow uh, that Instagram and and, the, and Twitter and the like start to feel like, you know what, we're not sure we should allow that to be broadcast because if bad things did happen, we are part of that chain of events that we broadcast yeah. what somebody else said. But the other side of that is that now we find these private companies stepping into those worlds and saying, actually, you can't say that. You can't communicate that opinion. You can't have that point of view. And we're noticing that censoring has started to come in to the general play of the way in which we're engaging with social media, which means now, instead of us curating the content, the social media platform is curating for us and is, in a sense, protecting us from any points of view it doesn't affirm or agree with. And boy, you don't have to talk like that for very long before you start to think maybe George Orwell did know something. <laughs> I'd agree. Look, and, and I think it's hard because we're, we're no longer living in, in geographically isolated areas where we can have our own um, around cultural interpretation of things. And we're no longer free to say, well, you know, because our country works this particular way, um, you know, those approaches don't apply to us anymore. We're living in a, in a global culture and a global community. And, and things that, that may not be offensive in one country, if they're offensive in another country and someone owns the bridge that those things can go to, you know, there's an argument that says that the owner of the bridge is responsible for it. Um, you know, Google's motto was do no evil, which, you know, puts them into a position where, you know, they're already calling themselves to be the morality champion of what goes through their network. 
you know whether they're doing a good job of that or not is is, is clearly open to, to debate but you know I think the interesting question is is just because America has thrown off the the yoke of the British uh, other com- other countries in the Commonwealth that are that are choosing to be happily conscripted to the British Empire still you know where is where is the the offense and language directed back at at Great Britain well for Americans, it'll be vastly different from other nations that that uh, that love the Queen, beholden to her, and and are wanting to stay connected. So, it's it's very interesting. And who is the champion, right? Who is the who is the the, the adjudicator of all of these things? Is it the United Nations? Well, you know, there's a lot of people who really don't don't like that organisation and don't accept their rule on anything. Who is it? You know, is it the people with the most money that are paying for it? Well, that's what it looks like at the moment, right? That's your point, I think. Well, that's the scary reality, that now these billionaire owners of these platforms are now the economic and also cultural influences Mm. because they have the money, they have the resources, and now they can decide what we can see, what we can't see, what we can talk about. And indeed, perhaps the most scary of all uh, was when... Uh, the platform, now you're going to have to remind me of the name of the platform that got cancelled from Google that wouldn't allow a parlor, is that what it was called? That wouldn't yes. al- al- be permitted uh, to even make its app available to users. And that seems to be a bridge too far. Mm. Well, it's, I mean, it's an interesting question, right? Because the, 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 when you're building an app, the thing that you, you need to have access to are the app stores, right? And and there's certain rules that you have to adhere to if you want to be allowed to use these app stores. And they're, they're quite, um, and they're there for a purpose. Apple, for example, are very much a champion of the family and of, of making sure that, that ratings can be put on things to keep families safe. You know, we've got children that need to be kept away from certain things. So you'll never be able to download a BitTorrent client on the Apple world. It'll never be able to be submitted. And their whole ecosystem is such that it keeps things locked down. So they very much are the boss. In the Google world, um, it's not so it's not so constricted and there's certain ways to get around it. There's a measure of control, but no, no way near the um, the level. So so when something is amiss and something is wrong and something uh, breaches those terms, the fastest way to stop people signing up to these things is to pull the plug. I don't know if you remember the 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 chat um, the chat app that arrived at the start of COVID that everyone jumped on um, that that went from you know millions to hundreds of millions of signups. In, in a matter of you know days, effectively, it was crazy. So these app stores allow the distribution of these communication networks. Now, once they're on your phone or on your device, Apple can't take them off. They're on there until um, until they get disabled by the the owner. So the only thing they can do is to stop people get them getting them on because once they're up, they exist. They can't shut them down after the fact. So. That's that's probably why you've seen so much noise around around that. So now we have the current scenario of people opting out. They're getting off Facebook. They're getting off Messenger. A friend of mine just last week, who's an IT professional like you, said, you know, on his last Facebook post, you know that I know about this stuff. So you should take the hint that if I'm stepping off, you should probably step off as well. Is that the thing to do? Do we need to flee? And if so, where are we supposed to go? 
Yeah, that's a good question. Look, my my opinion is that um, you know it's very easy to to be to be drawn into the conspiracy theorists and and the alarmists, right? But in the midst of all of this, these great questions and these great debates that we have to have, we've got all sorts of things now which we never used to be able to have. When we have things like tsunami warnings or we have um, you know hurricanes where where people are lost, people can now use these channels to say, hey, actually, I'm safe, you know, and families on the other side of the world can now know that those person. Uh, those people that care about aren't safe. They won't overload the first responders, and and they can be. And those first responders can now focus their energies looking for the people that truly are lost. Right. So, I think there's there's a whole heap of things that are really valuable in this space. Um, you know, our learning, our ability to to gain knowledge about events and challenges and and scientific endeavor. All of these things are facilitated by social media as people choose to make their network available to these really altruistic causes that add huge value to humanity and enable us to continue to care for and grow and look after each other. So my opinion is that we just need to be aware of of where these things can go wrong and decide where we want to land um, and not really throw the baby out with the bathwater. A lot of people are responding in very fearful ways. And with that, of course, becomes this great concern that the mind control, government control uh, images of George Orwell's 1984 are becoming reality in front of us. I mean, just how afraid do we need to be? Is it enough just to be aware? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, the summary of George Orwell's 1984 book was pretty much don't do nothing. Right. That was if you if you do nothing, these things occur. And uh, and so I think that the fact that these conversations are being had and they have to be had with passion. Right. They can't they can't be something that we just, you know, sip on a soda and, and have a chat around the barbecue because nothing will happen. We need we need people that that are absolutely in, incensed one way and other people that are completely, you know, uh, reject that on the other side to get a healthy debate we need we need people who are educated and people that are prepared to do research as much as we need the people that are just fearful and just want to want to share where their where their heart and their emotions are i think everyone has a voice and everything is valid and providing there's a conversation being had about it the people that own these networks will adjust their position as the majority swings to a position right and so i think you know the same way 1984 said, do nothing, the fat pigs will take over the world and we'll all become enslaved. I think that's exactly where we are. If we do nothing, we have no opinion. We don't demand change of some kind. We just hand over more and more power to the people who already have arguably too much power as it is. Well, I think Matt makes an excellent point, which we should turn into our slogan, which is don't do nothing. My English teacher would hate this slogan, but nevertheless, don't do nothing. The problem is, it's hard to know exactly what the something is that we could be doing. Well, I've got three ideas. Number one, let's make it abundantly clear to the social media platforms that if they're going to create this fake community space that looks like a community space, they could let the rules of free speech apply. After all, they're making a lot of money out of our private lives. The second is perhaps to actually talk 
to the lawmakers and make sure that our free speech laws are fit for purpose in the 21st century? Do we need to upgrade our free speech laws? Because the people who wrote those laws couldn't have imagined the world in which we live where the public space is owned by private companies. And finally, of course, you could just give the big unlike social media. Decide, you know what, I'm out, not doing this anymore. And I have a few friends who've unplugged their social media accounts. And between you and me, they seem a lot more peaceful these days. Well, I hope you found today's program interesting. You can get in touch at activeintelligence.nz. And I will see you next time.